Today's reading is 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in, our, in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry. Are we, we might be good now. I maybe didn't tighten it all the way. We're professionals. All right, how's everybody? We're good? All right, all right. So, a little rusty on Peter, haven't done it in a few weeks, but, um, okay, so this is, a, this is an interesting passage. It's got a lot of sort of mystical sounding stuff in it, um, but I'm going to break it down and try to make it easy to understand. I, we may not cover, probably not going to cover verse 20 and 21 this week, um, and hopefully I'll get back to it in a, in a couple weeks. And uh, so this week we're going to cover basically the first half of that, 16 through 18. I might touch on the other stuff. Um, but today we're going to talk about skepticism. We're going to talk about doubt. We're going to talk about um, why the apostles wrote what they wrote. We're going to talk about um, the impact that it had on them, the things that they saw. And so all of this is sort of wrapped up in a rebuttal that Peter has against some people uh, that are apparently influencing the church that he is working with and he is planting and that that he has been sort of ministering to. And so um, we're going to jump into this. I'm going to pray and we'll open this up and and talk about it. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for meeting us here. Thank you for meeting us exactly where we are. And uh, I ask that you would change us, that you would make us more in your image, that you would make us more, more loving people, more joyous people, more forgiving people and merciful people, people that care about um, the salvation of those all around us, not just the salvation of souls, but the salvation of hearts and minds and marriages and relationships and lives and meaning and purpose. I, I ask that you would help us to be your instruments of salvation all around us. Thank you. For gathering these people here. I ask that you would speak through me this morning. Calm us all. Allow us all to be very present. Allow us all to realize that you are here and that, that you, you are drawing us to you. And there's so many different things that you are using to draw us to you. So give us some perspective. Give us some, uh, some knowledge that maybe we hadn't thought of before. And help us learn from each other. We love you, God. In your name. Amen. So we're going to start in the first half of verse 16. We call it 16a. Get it? Um, Okay. It says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So um, I'm going to talk about this idea for a minute. When, uh, when, When I first became the pastor of Watermark, it was like circa 2007, um... And I was working at the Starbucks on the corner over here, and I was um, sort of like a shift manager, and I worked the four in the morning till one in the afternoon shift, and then I would go home and then write sermons and stuff at the church. Um, I did that for about three years, and so the people there knew I was a pastor, and it didn't 
you know, it wasn't a topic of conversation ever. Um, once or twice it came up, people asked, asked questions, and but most of all, I was just friends with all the people there. And um, so one time the topic did come up, and someone said something. It was a girl from Trinidad, and a friend of mine that worked over there, and she said something to the effect of, Jesus, huh? I said, yeah. She goes, I think that is the greatest fairy tale ever told. And I looked at her and I said, so you don't, you don't think he, he existed or what? And she said, uh, he probably existed. I just don't believe the things that they say about him. They don't make scientific sense. They don't. None of it makes any sense. Um, that stuff that, that people claim about him was impossible. And it was probably myth added on later on. Um, and so we talked about this for a little while. And um, most discussions like that, especially the first time you have them, nobody changes their mind on anything. But it's, it's nice to just kind of level with people and listen to them and find out where they're at. Um, and here's the thing. What she is saying is not new. We tend to think our skepticism of the scriptures. I mean, if you, if you log on to Netflix and you flip through, you're going to find any number of documentaries about how Jesus was a myth and all this stuff. And I've watched them all. And um, there's nothing new there. Um, people tend to think that this is a new idea. We've just realized that, that uh, we've just found out and realized that Jesus was a myth. And that it never, it never actually happened. And this is brand new information. This is not a new idea. This idea has been promoted since the day of time of Christ. Um, that's exactly what Peter's talking about here, actually. Some people in his congregation were saying that, that Jesus was a myth. He literally says, cleverly devised myths. Um, and so let's open this up. Uh, the word cleverly devised um, is, is the word sophizo. And it means to make wise. And so the general idea behind something that is cleverly devised is it's sort of for enlightenment. It's sort of um, in the same way that Jesus told parables, uh, that it's a story. And like if I were to tell you, I told my daughter all the time about the boy who cried wolf. And that's a cleverly devised myth. It's something that there was probably a boy somewhere that was a shepherd. And there probably was a wolf. So this probably happened. But the story's not true. But it's true, but it's not true. But we tell the story to make a point to get you to stop crying for no reason because we're starting to not believe you when you say you're hurt anymore kind of thing. Um, and so this is like the point of the story. It's true, but it's not true. And so people are saying that that's sort of what this is, cleverly devised. The word myth is the word mythos. And uh, a mythos is an ancient, pre-modern, pre-scientific way of addressing questions of ultimate origins and meaning in the form of stories. Um, this has to do with the question, why are we here? Um, what is the meaning of life? Who are we? Who is God? That's what mythos is. Um, and so Peter is writing to these people and he's saying, I know you think I'm creating some story that me and the apostles got together and we created some story to try to explain why we're here because we're afraid of death or something. But that's not what this is. That's not what this is at all. And so he's going to talk to them a little bit about why this is different, what he's teaching. Now, cleverly devised myth is what my friend from Trinidad at Starbucks, this is what she believed that Christianity is. That the apostles came together and they, they devised some idea, probably for political gain, for power, um, to, to fight against the man, to cause a rebellious uprising. That's typically what these stories were for. Um, and by the way, um, mythos is usually about power. 
That's usually why these ancient stories are told. That's um, all throughout ancient Greece and stuff. That's sort of the stories of mythos about how we got here, why we were here. Um, They were always sort of a control sort of thing. And by the way, um, that's what a lot of people think we are doing here. They think we are telling stories for power, to control people, um, to have sway over your opinions. They think it's, it's um, just simply a way of molding people's minds so that they can do what we want. And by the way, uh, whenever you go off on your p- big political rants online, you're trying to convince people that this is what God wants us to do. And all the non-followers of Jesus, all they see is mythos. They're trying to control us using the religion for political power and gain. And so that's typically what people tend, I, I, I'm going to be honest with you, this is how people tend to see Christianity. Because this is how religion has been used, I mean, throughout history. Um, that's what, uh, it's exactly what first century Jewish zealots were trying to do. It's what a lot of branches of Hinduism, Taoism, Islamism, and the Christian crusaders were all trying to do. Control people with religion. And Peter says that is not what this is. This is not a way for us to try to gain control and power over the underlings of the world. Um, And so he says, in fact, everything that I'm saying is just the opposite. He says, the second half of the verse, he says, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, says, I saw things that I cannot explain, things that... Um, shocked me, things that changed my view of the whole entire world around me. And it's not just me. He says, we were eyewitnesses. He doesn't explain who the we is, but the original listeners would have known. They probably knew the people he was talking about. He's talking about the other apostles. And so he goes into this, um, he goes into this event of something they, they all collectively saw. And, and it's, Difficult to understand when you just read Second Peter by itself, but, but here's what he says in verse 17 and 18. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So, it all sounds very like, we were with him on the holy mountain, and blah, blah, blah. It sounds really, really hard to understand. Um, sounds like he's just sort of telling a story, but... We know that what he was talking about is an event that is actually covered by three different Gospels, uh, Matthew, uh, Matthew 17, Mark 9, and Luke 9. It's called the Transfiguration. Um, and all three of these, these Gospels, uh, the trans- word Transfiguration is a word that, that we gave it. Um, it was this interesting event that happened um, in the life of Jesus and three of his disciples. And so what basically happens here um, is this. As the story goes, Jesus goes and gets Peter, the author of our book that we're reading now, uh, John and James. And he takes them up this mountain to pray. And we know it to be modern-day Mount Hermon. Um, Is that right? Yeah, Mount Hermon is is what we call it now. Um, And the text says that while they were praying near the summit of this mountain, everything kind of went white and there was a lot of light and, and, and then they looked at Jesus, and, the two, and there was two men that were there talking with Jesus that did not walk up the mountain with them. Um, and the text says that these men were, were recognized and affirmed by Jesus to be Moses 
and Elijah, two prophets from a long time ago that had died. They were like the forefathers of Israel. The teachings, all, most of the things that the Israelites believed and, and the first century Jews believed came from Moses and Elijah. And apparently everything went white and they went and found Jesus and there was two men there talking with him. Um, and there's a lot more to the story, but I'm just giving you the important parts, um, the cliff notes, if you will. Um, and so then there's this voice from, from the cloud around them, and it says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Um, the actual words that, um, I, don't, I don't necessarily know why Peter wrote this here, the words that we have in the Transfiguration documents um, says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Um, slightly different, um, kind of the same, but slightly different meaning. And, okay, so, fun facts about Mount Hermon, shall we? Um, this is not necessarily um, a bizarre event for this mountain. I know that sounds weird. Um, but even modern day people say when they, when they, when they climb the mountain, and there's a man named uh, uh, Alfred uh, Edersheim, and he's, like a, he's, a, he's a theologian, and he was taking a, a group of people up the mountain some years ago, Mount Hermon. Oh, by the way, boom, Mount Hermon. Um, and they were traveling up the mountain, and he writes that in a few minutes, a thick, a thick cap forms over the top of the mountains. He's talking about the clouds. He says the clouds just, within three minutes, just appear all around them. Um, and he says that as quickly as they appeared, they just randomly dispersed. That as this happens all the time, apparently, the geographical location of this mountain um, and the weather patterns are bizarre. That while you're climbing this mountain, you will be surrounded suddenly by a white cloud, incredibly thick, and then a few minutes later, it just disappear. And so this, at first, they probably wouldn't have been all that surprised by what was going on. Um, oh, great, it's cloudy again. We'll just hang out here. Um, but then, apparently, the cloud got very mysterious. And when they found Jesus, there was two people there talking to him. And it said the cloud was sort of luminous, sort of like the sun had lit up this cloud. And then there was this voice that they all heard. And then it says, so, so the voice says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then the voice ends, and the cloud disappears, and Jesus is standing alone, as the passage says. So, Peter writes to these people, and he says, this is not cleverly devised myth. I was with James and John and Jesus, and we were on the mountain, and this event happened, and I cannot explain it. Now, to us, someone telling a story, even four people sort of agreeing that this story happened, isn't all that convincing to an ancient Jewish people, um, the story itself is convincing because of what it means, not because of the events that happened. Um, they looked to Moses and Elijah as their patriarchs. The, the message of God came through them, and now um, they appear with Jesus, and the voice of Yahweh appears and, and sort of passes it from them to him, as if to say, you were listening to these guys, now you're going to listen to Jesus. And so for the ancient Jews, the first century Jews, this was a huge deal. This was a big story. And he points to this one in particular as if to say, because we saw things and the message of God was revealed to us. Now, in sort of referencing this, he's sort of referencing all the events in general. We saw things. We were there. He names this one in particular because of the meaning that it has. But to him... He says, this is not made up stuff. It's just stuff that I can't explain that I was there and God showed to us. Now, um, this sort of 
raises a lot of questions for me. I mean, he, he points to evidence of something that he saw. And here we are today in this, first, in this 21st century, and we don't really see stuff like this. And he can say, it's not a cleverly devised myth. It's just something that happened. I was there. I saw it. These other people are there. They're still alive. You can ask them. But they're not alive anymore. And so oftentimes, maybe in your, in your teen years, um, if you were like me, then you, you were solid. You understood and you believed fully. And then you got into your 20s and you still believed solidly. You went to Bible college. I was pretty sheltered. And then you get into the real world and you live for a while. You know lots of people. And you hear some things and you see some things and you read some things. And some events happen in your life. And... The little creeping of doubt is like weeds coming into an abandoned house, just slowly, and it's there. And I know for a fact a lot of you have dealt with doubt. You can't help it. It's what happens. And so the question we have is, um, is sort of, why do you believe what you believe? And at some point, you will ask yourself this. If you haven't yet, you will. Why do I believe this? Is it something that I just inherited? Is it just easier? Do I believe this because I'm afraid of death? Why do I believe this? And so this is kind of what I want to talk about this morning because the whole purpose, I mean, you can, we can spend a lot of time pulling out all the theology of this passage, but the, the purpose, the intent of writing this passage is because people had doubts. And so he points to an event and says, this happened. And so I'd rather talk about the idea, the big idea that, that we're dealing with, which is, why do we believe? And so, this brings me back to my conversation at Starbucks. And basically, what my friend from Trinidad was saying is, some people claim to have seen some things that, scientifically speaking, aren't, are impossible. Yet you believe them. And I answer, yes. And does that make a lot of sense? No. So why do I believe? And so this is sort of me, Tommy... I'm going to explain to you this morning why I believe what I believe. And it's not going to be this comprehensive list. It's not going to be this super in-depth thing. There's going to be lots of places that I don't touch this morning. But I'm going to, I'm going to give you some things that maybe will help you. Um, things that, that I have written down over the years that anchor me firm in, in these things. That when the doubts arise, I, I, I go back to these things and I say, this is it right here. These are the things. And so I'm, I'm going to take some time this morning and explain a few of these. Um, I'm a natural-born skeptic, first off. I question things. I don't necessarily accept things people tell me. Um, I like to deconstruct stuff, take it apart, and see what's really there at the bottom of it. Um, I ask a lot of questions. I want to make sure what I believe is rational and that, that it's not my own, uh, that, it, that it is my own. It, it's not someone else's that was given to me, that I didn't inherit it. Um, and... One of the things, actually, that, that holds me pretty, pretty firm when the doubts arise is, and, and I think this is an absolute valid argument, and I'm going to open it up for you. Um, one of the reasons that I, that I do believe in Jesus and the literal resurrection and that this is real is because of the experiences of others. And that sounds a little crazy. What about you? I haven't particularly had any big mystical experiences in my life. I just haven't. I, I know lots of people who say they have. Um, I haven't. Um, I'm a natural skeptic, so I tend to listen and nod, and I, and I trust people. I wouldn't say I fully believe people, but mainly when I say the experience of others, I'm mainly pointing back to the apostles. 
Because what happened there really, really translates to me as just, it's something that I have to put weight in, that I have to put faith in. Um, And it's not just that the apostles saw some things and then changed their beliefs to meet these things. It's that the apostles changed their beliefs into things that that were unfathomable in that day. That would be like um, Christians today suddenly believing that we're all plugged into the Matrix. It doesn't make sense, especially if the Matrix movie had never been made, right? Like, brand new movie. What if I just stood up here and the movie had never been made and I said, guys, I want you to know we're all in a computer. We're all in a bunch of pods filled with slime and there's things plugged on the back of our heads um, and none of this is real. Um, that's the same thing. And, and suddenly you all believed it. That wouldn't make any sense. And that's the same thing as the apostles suddenly seeing one guy resurrected and believing that this guy is the Messiah, that, that the Messiah would actually die. And these are all brand new ideas. They're nowhere in history before this, despite what the stupid Netflix documentaries tell you. It's not, it's not true. Um, and not only that, not only were they believing things that just were unfathomable to them, that the only way they would believe them is if they were actually true. They, they saw these things. It's that they changed their entire life, not just their belief system, their life, and, and ran in this direction. And suffered for 5, 10, 15, 20, 40, 50, 60 years and died terrible, gruesome deaths. I mean, let's, if I may, if I may bum you out for a minute, let's walk through some of this. Um, Peter, the guy whose book we're reading right now, um, was crucified upside down for preaching the gospel and for writing these books. Um, Andrew, the brother of Peter, uh, stood before the Roman proconsul and they asked him basically to recant his faith. And he said, no. He said, what I saw was real and what I saw is true and people need to know. And so they absolutely tortured him. Um, and then they, rather than nailing him to a cross, they crucified him with ropes. They tied him to the cross where he hung for two days um, and every person that passed by, it said that he preached the gospel to them while he was hanging on the cross. Um, James, the son of Zebedee, was, was arrested and, and led to a place of execution. And, and while he was there, the guy who accused him of being a Christian watched him stand trial and be so incredibly brave that the man who accused him actually believed because of his faith. And when they condemned James to be executed, um, he said, I want to be executed with him. He has convinced me, and they obliged, and they knelt side by side, and their heads were chopped off. Um, Philip, the first of Jesus' disciples, um, he was scourged and thrown into prison and crucified in 54 AD. Bartholomew was skinned alive, and then he was beheaded, skinned alive, and then beheaded, all for preaching the gospel. Thomas preached the gospel in India and in Greece. And when he did this, he, he really angered the local religious authorities and they martyred him by running him through with a spear. Um, Matthew was stabbed in the back uh, by a swordsman sent by King Herticus after he preached the gospel there. Um, James, the son of Alphaeus, um, when he was 94 years old, so he, he, he was on this path for a long time, traveling, preaching, being persecuted. For, he was 94 years old. He was beaten and he was stoned by persecutors. And then they killed him by hitting him in the head with a club. Thaddeus was crucified in 72 AD. Um, Simon is crucified uh, in 74 AD. Things did not go well for these guys. Um, uh, 
And, and all I can do when I hear these things is think of Peter saying, um, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. If these guys gathered in a room somewhere and came up with this crazy idea that Jesus rose from the dead and he is the Lord and he should be the one that everyone rallies behind. Um, at some point after half a century of persecution and arrest and torture and all of them being killed one by one, at some point somebody would admit to this and say, I'm out. We lied. We made it all up. And so sometimes when the doubts creep up and they are there, oftentimes I sit and meditate on the apostles. And this is something I wrote a long time ago. And if you follow me on Twitter, I sent it out yesterday. Whatever, I know, Twitter, right? I, I'm, I'm relevant. Um, whatever the apostles saw that, that caused them to sacrifice themselves for it is far more convincing than the shrugging shoulders of agnosticism will ever be. Ever. What they lived through, what they went through, and how they died, based upon what they say they saw, is far more convincing than the, I don't know. You can't know. You can't know at all. They knew something. (laughs) And sometimes it's okay to hold on to the faith of other people who went through intense, incredible things because of what they saw. It was so convincing watching Jesus walking this world, loving people and teaching and then being arrested and suffering and dying and then hearing him again risen days later, weeks later and he is alive teaching them that changes them and and, and forces them to launch out into the world to tell every man, woman and child that they meet, God loves you. There's this guy, Jesus and he's the son of God and this is what he did. Um, Somehow, this weighs a lot heavier than this. I've heard a lot of arguments for agnosticism. I've, I've heard a lot of good, good arguments for agnosticism, and I've never heard one strong enough to offset the passionate lives and the brutal deaths of the apostles. I just haven't. Um, so sometimes the experiences of others are enough. And so oftentimes one of the reasons I believe is because of the experiences of the apostles. Some of you have your own experiences. They're mystical and they're... Fascinating. I've never had one. Uh, apparently, I don't need one. If I do, God would have given it to me. Um, another thing that, that holds me firm in, in the things that I believe is oftentimes the faith of others. Um, and here's what I mean. Um, I, know, I know lots of people who are just brilliant, who have book lists longer than my Netflix watch history. Like, the amount of books that they have read are, it just, it blows my mind. Um, the places they've traveled, the things that, they've, that they know, the things that they've done, the things that they've learned, and the amount of letters they've added to the end of their name. Um, they, it's so much, and they still believe. And they, they have this passionate love of Jesus. And that's, to me, that means something. And so I look up to these people. And I, and I dig into the, their minds and I say, what, what is it that keeps you here? What holds you strong in this? And it's not just that. It's also the faith of people who are just people that I want to be. Um, people who are really good, really loving, passionate people who are happy. And they have good marriages and they're good mothers and good fathers. And um, they love the people around them. And it's the most convincing reason to follow Jesus to me when, I, when, I, when I'm around them. 
they're just everything that I want to be. And you ask them why, and they say, well, because Jesus did this for me. And I'm a follower of his. And that, that's incredibly important to me. That's convincing. It's fulfilling. I mean, I don't know about you. I've met some people who have made me doubt Christianity who claim to be Christians. Who are just awful people and they use the scriptures to be that way. And that hurts people's faith. I want you to, I want you to ponder the fact that some people are looking to you f- for the roots of their faith. They're looking to you and they're, they're, they're watching your life, your Christian life, and they're, they're watching you lean into Jesus and, and, and follow Jesus. And you may not ever know it, but your faith and your humble service and love of God and people is holding them in place. I want you to be encouraged by that. It's hard. It's difficult. But simply you living it out saves other people. Saves their faith. Um, and so it's not just the, ex- the experiences of others like the saints. It's not just the faith of others. Oftentimes it's the experiences of my own. Um, I think it's fascinating that when you read the scriptures, every time God goes to the Israelites and he gives them a new command, um, either... either when he gives them the Ten Commandments, when he gives them a new law, when he says, we're going to do something different, when he says, I'm going to take you over here, when he says, you need to trust me for something, he never just says blindly, you just need to trust me because I'm God. He always says something like this, Exodus 22, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And then he says what he wants them to know, what he wants them to do. And so he never just says, just trust me. He says, I want you to look back. I want you to know, think about where we've come from. Think about what we've been through together. Think about how I've taken care of you. You're still here. There are things in your life that are incredible blessings. And you're thankful for them. I want you to remember where you got those things. And I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to trust me. And we're going to go this way. And so sometimes you can look back on your journey in life. And you can see, I can see in my life how it was my faith that carried me through these really intense hard times, through deaths and the family and the loss of friends, um, through times of just, I have no idea what to do here and I'm terrified and I'm terrified I'm going to lose everything. And you just kind of lean on God because it's all you got and he walks you through it. And so now sometimes when I'm being called to something and I have doubts God says, hey, I am the God who brought you out of this and this and this and this. And I can look back and I can see and I can say, okay, you've brought me this far and I trust you. So it's, it's my past. It's also the experiences that I have. I know that, um, I know that, that the times when I have really strived to live in the way the scriptures say, when I've li- really tried to live a life that is pleasing to Christ and, and really tried to just live this holy life, um, those are the, actually the, the times my life has been the best. And I know that the times that I've strayed from that and I've gotten into stuff that I shouldn't and I have sort of betrayed my trust and my faith in God for, for whatever vice it is, um, the times when I've gone after that are the most terrifying and painful times of my life. And maybe that's you. I know some of you. I know your stories and I know that's true. 
that the times when you have walked away from God and done your own thing and lived as if there is no God, that was the most painful time. And then the times when you are just in it and you're trusting and you're serving and you're loving and you're serving your family and your spouse and you're serving those around you because of your love for God and you're letting yourself be filled up and you're letting yourself be poured out for other people and you're doing it. Those have actually been the best times of your life and you know that. That's important. That comes into play. And so a lot of you have questions. Okay, so, but, but I have these doubts. What do I do with my doubts, with my nagging questions? And what you're basically looking for is answers. You want somebody to say, oh, I can explain that. It's this. Well, you can't always explain that. Um, there's a quote by Scott McKnight, and, and he says this. My favorite image for the one with doubt is that of Jacob, who wrestled God, but limped for the rest of his life. Some think they will be healed, and some are, while others learn to walk and run with a limp. There may not ever be an answer to the question that you have. I have plenty of questions that I cannot answer. I I don't believe because everything makes perfect sense. There's plenty of things that I'm confused about. There's plenty of ways that I question, why would God do that? Why would God allow this? Why would... And sometimes when you wrestle with God, you're going to walk with a limp. And I think somewhere deep in all of our hearts, there is a part of our faith that is limping. Nobody has perfect faith. I assure you, no human being in history has had perfect faith. None of them. Even John the Baptist, when he was arrested and he was about to be beheaded, he had disciples that were there talking to him in prison. And he sent those disciples to Jesus. John the Baptist sent these disciples to Jesus. And here's what they said. He told them to ask this. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you see and what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. He says, look at what the message is doing to people. Look what it's doing for people. Look at the lives that are being changed. Is that not evidence enough or do you need to have all your little scientific inquiries answered? What's more important? Richard, I, think, I believe one of the things that Richard Rohr said was pretty brilliant. He said, mature spirituality insists that we hold out for meaning instead of settling for mere answers. Mere answers. That's all you want, answers. You want everything to make scientific, perfect sense. You want every, A plus B has to equal C or I'm out. Well, scientific equation, no scientific equation has ever given anyone happiness or purpose or meaning or hope. Never has. That's not what it does. And so I think there's some things we need to realize. One of them is that um, no one can prove to you that, that God is real or that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. Nobody can prove to you, prove to you any of this. And the fact is, um, anyone who stands up and claims that they can absolutely prove to you, you should be really skeptical of them. They probably have an agenda because it cannot be proven. Um, in fact, if it was proven to you, you would no longer have faith in it. I've said this before. Um, certainty is not, no, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is the opposite of faith. When you are certain of something, you no longer have faith. Doubt and faith, they kind of, they kind of go hand in hand. That's what that is. 
And so nobody can stand up there and prove to you, oh, here's how we know that God is real. Here's how I can prove to you that God is real. Here's how we know Jesus rose from the dead. I can prove it to you. And here's exactly what that means for you. And all of your inquiry has been answered by my system of theology. And here you go. That's all. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. All we know is that, that, that some many, many, many people suffered and died for this message because what they saw impacted them so much that it set them out for the rest of their lives, a life of pain and suffering and misery because they believed people needed to know this. And so sometimes I lean on their faith. And all that we know is that for 2,000 years now, there's been a community of people who have centered themselves around this idea that Jesus was raised from the dead and what that means for the world around us. And when you do this, when you live in this way, and when you lean into this, um, really good things happen. And people are given hope and lives are changed and the world is made better. And the deepest parts of us that philosophically um, need to be filled are filled. That's what we know. So it's history, but yes, it's history, but it's bigger than that. It's, it's understanding that goes far beyond history. It goes into the present and it goes into the future. The resurrection of Jesus is incredibly important on so many levels, not just because it happened. It's so much more than that. It's because it can happen again and again and again and again and again. And so there are a, there's a group of people who, and this is fascinating to me, there's a group of people um, who in this world, those moments of death in your life, those, there's moments in your life where you have of sorrow and pain and misery and anguish. We all have those moments interspersed throughout our life. And the vast majority of the world says, well, th- these moments are a glimpse of the future. Right? We're all going to die. Everyone you know is going to one by one be taken from your life and then you will die. And so the pain and the anguish and the moments of, of, of suffering in your life are actually a glimpse of the future. And then there's this whole other group of people, the followers of Jesus, us, who claim the opposite, who claim, no, 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 no. It's those moments of laughter when you're with your friends cutting up. It's, it's those moments of, of, of children being born, of the moments of holding the ones you love, the moments of incredible sex with your spouse. It's the moments of just the wonderful, good times in your life. These moments are the future. These are a glimpse of what is to come, not that. And that is the difference between the people of resurrection and the people of agnosticism and hopelessness. And I don't know. I mean, which story do you want to live in? The people who suffered and died, um, the apostles, have every reason it would appear to say, well, the suffering and the death is the future because they literally suffered and died in terrible ways which we'll never fathom. But that's not what they believed. They believed the wonderful times of goodness and joy and mercy and, and, and love that those were the future. And so I hope maybe somehow this has helped you. I mean, these are the things that, that as throughout my life, when times have gotten dark and I sit and I ponder the ways that God has interacted with humanity and, and what it has done to them, I get great hope out of that. And sometimes God reveals little pieces, little bits and pieces to me that, that just really, really help. But other times I simply have to rely on 
the fact that I know that this was not cleverly devised myths, that these things happened for these people, and that I trust that they can happen again, and that they will. And so why don't we take some time, and why don't we go to communion? Um, our communion servers, you guys can go ahead and, and um, take the elements and spread around the room. If you are here today, and, and you are a skeptic, and you are a doubter, I, I want you to know that it's okay. God's not upset about it. There's entire books in the scripture. There's one of them called Lamentations, Lamenting. It's somebody really mad at God for what he did, just yelling at him. And God allowed it to be part of the book, the holy book that we claim is the message of God. It's okay. But I want you to think deeper than just A plus B equals C. I want you to think philosophically. I want you to think emotionally. I want you to think hopefully. I want you to think, um, what was it that they experienced? How could this change these people so much? And so as we're going to communion today, I want you to sort of open up to God. I want you to listen. I want you to think deeply and uh, spend some time in prayer. And, And if you would like to become a follower of Jesus, if you're just, if you want to step forward by faith, We would love that. Come forward and take communion with us and hang around and I'll talk to you. If you just need prayer, um, through these doors on the left, there's a prayer room if you need to talk to somebody. Um, And so our uh, our communion servers are are spread around. Let's pray and let's take communion. Father, thank you. We love you. You are a good, holy, wonderful God. You have done things in this world. This message that you've given us has changed the hearts and lives of people for thousands of years. And I ask that it would do the same for us. Make us a people that are passionate and loving and hopeful and that are sort of wells of life in our community. That when people interact with us, that they come away a little more hopeful and joyful, that God is real, that God's not pushing them away, that God's not angry, that God is drawing them in. We love you. In your name, amen. Take some time and uh, talk to Jesus.